Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. In this, our final episode for 2023, Florida Man Reappears. We take a look at some pronouncements or non-pronouncements from the SEC. What's the role of HR on onboarding and compliance? How can you improve a corporate culture? Looking back at Serpico at 50 and the Salt Lake City Olympics at 25. All on this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. Welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance podcast with me, Christy Grantharp. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox, and this week we're covering the SEC's punt on climate change disclosure rules. We look back at police and Olympic bribery scandals and how they affect the present, plus we delve into the new European AI regulation. We also learn why Florida man's booty patrol was a bust, both on him and for him. But first, Tom, how has your week been and what do you think is the most interesting development? Well, uh, my week has been good, but it's going to move to great because my most interesting development will actually happen on Saturday when together with our spouses, we're going to get together for lunch. I'm so, so excited. Do you want to tell them why we're going to end up at lunch together, Tom? Well, uh, my wife and I are in, we're going to Las Vegas for my wife's birthday, uh, so I can take her to see Garth Brooks, and we're going to have lunch uh, before that at Gordon Ramsay's. How about you guys? I love it. We're going on Friday night to celebrate our 11th wedding anniversary, and we're going to go see you two at the Sphere at the Venetian. So excited. And Tom, I love it that you chose Gordon Ramsay Pub as both of our spouses are British it's a perfect theme, uh, and we'll take some pictures, get together, and make sure they get up on LinkedIn as well. Uh, we're going to get together with some friends uh, Friday night for dinner, and I asked my wife where she want, wanted to go, and she goes, nothing wrong with Gordon going to Gordon Ramsay's twice. Love so, it. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. So uh, where should we start, Tom? What about the, what's going on with the SEC? Well, uh, we had a very interesting article from uh, the Wall Street Journal CFO Journal, uh, not the Risk and Compliance Journal, Mark Maurer reporting that he had an interview with Paul Munter, who is the SEC's chief accountant, and uh, it was questions about what was on his mind. And I found it really interesting um, because he talked about corporate culture. Now, not, uh, I shouldn't say corporate culture, I said should say culture of audit firms and how a tepid one can foster professional misconduct from cheating on exams to backdating work papers, among other breakdowns. Uh, probably many of our listeners will remember a couple of years ago, there was a major scandal around cheating on exams. And I think you, myself, and others uh, kind of wondered out loud, well, gosh, if you're cheating on exams, what are they doing on audits? And that really drives home or drove home then, and Munter's remarks now drive home now, for me, Christy, the importance of corporate culture. And you might think cheating on an exam is a small thing, although in licensed industries such as ours 
and accountants. I think it's a pretty important thing. But if you're willing to cheat on your exam, where else are you willing to cheat on? And if you have a culture which not only allows it, but fosters it, what does that say about the overall audit firm culture and what they're willing to look or overlook as the case may be? So uh, I was really gratified that he talked about culture, obviously in the context of audit firms, but really driving home the message that you, I, and others have been talking about for some time. Uh, and in fact, the DOJ is talking about, it's all about the culture. It is all about the culture. Um, I appreciated that he called out the recent examples. There was the $7 million fine uh, at PwC for their Hong Kong and China-based um, cheating that was happening. Um, we we covered, Tom, earlier this year, KPMG's cheating on exams in the Netherlands that got a big fine for them. Uh, this, the article called out Deloitte and, and also EY for previous scandals. Um, I mean, does it ever affect anybody though. And it feels kind of like it's all very slap on the wrist nonsense that nothing really ever happens. I mean, am I being too cynical here? Or do you think that things change? Well, uh, all I can point to is if you allow that, uh, the consequences down the road can be catastrophic. And being from Houston, my favorite example, of course, is Ken Lay, who two companies before Enron uh, got caught budging on regulatory requirements and he got a slap on the wrist then, and we all know what happened to Enron. So um, I think regulators have to to come down on this. They The DOJ uh, started talking about this in 2021 around the, um, uh, well, Lisa Monaco talked about it, and then became incorporated into the 2023 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs and is a part of the evaluation of any company who goes through and FCPA enforcement action. So I think we're going to start talking about it more. And from the, when the regulators talk about it, we talk about it, businesses talk about it, and things begin to get done. Well, I hope so. I mean, the SEC makes a, a presentation in a whole bunch of these different articles we're talking about today. And the next one is about them kicking the climate rules and the disclosures down the road to 2024. So this is from our friend, Matt Kelly. Hello, Matt, at Radical Compliance. And it explains that what at this point we all knew was basically inevitable, which is the SEC has pushed the adoption of its greenhouse gas disclosure rule to April 2024. Uh, fingers crossed on that one. That may or may not be true, as he points out. But you, know, you may remember, if you look into the dim and distant past, that the original proposed climate disclosure rule was published in March 2022 with the hope of enacting the rule by early 2023. You may have noticed that wasn't to be, as the rule was one of the longest and most complicated in SEC history, uh, coming in at a whopping 490 pages. So it was noteworthy for other reasons, uh, as it received thousands upon thousands of comments, making it the most commented upon proposed rule in SEC history. So the big challenge is likely about if and how the SEC will require scope three emissions data. And so those are greenhouse gases caused by your company's supply chain, including upstream, which is uh, gases that are uh, created by your suppliers to provide you with goods and services, and potentially downstream as well, meaning greenhouse gas caused by your products once they have sold to customers. So in recent weeks, the SEC officials have reportedly been telling the business community that the final rules scope three requirements will be, quote, significantly scaled back, unquote from the original proposal, but who knows? 
So Matt Kelly reminds us in the article that the reprieve isn't really a reprieve for most larger companies as the California and European climate disclosure laws are busily coming into force in 2026. And that if the SEC actually kicks this around, they might be 2026 as well. So isn't that kind of a nice streamlined way of looking at this? Um, he reminds us also that if you are not publicly traded or large enough to be caught by the California and European laws, you're still going to have to respond to activist investors and consumer pressure so people get cracking. Uh, Tom, do you think that this prolonged period reflects badly on the SEC? Is it important? Does it say anything at all? What are your takes on this? You know, I don't want to yawn or engage in ennui, but... Uh, at this point, I'm almost, or I'm almost to the point where I don't care. And I don't care because businesses have made this a priority. I interviewed uh, a woman around this topic a couple of weeks ago. And she just said, I said, what, what, what should a business do? Should they look to the proposed SEC rules, how they prepare? And she just said, look, get a framework. I don't care what it is. Do something. And do something because one, if the SEC has a different rule, they're not going to sanction you for putting a framework in place. Number two, it is a it's this is not just a nice to have. This is mandatory business now. If you want to do business as a contractor, you have to have an ESG program. If you want to access capital markets through raising stock on a public market, through private equity, through a bank, if you want to get insurance, um, you're going to have to have an ESG program. And if I've given this example on our podcast, I apologize for saying it, but I will say it one more time. I represent multiple small $100 million companies who did business in the petrochemical industry on the Texas Gulf Coast. They are required by plant owners to have an ESG program in place that's auditable. Now, these are $100 million companies that have to have this. That's to do, that's to get a contract to do business. That doesn't guarantee a business. So businesses are driving this. If you want a framework, you can go to Europe. You can go to SASB. There are some other uh, groups that have frameworks in place. Um, the SEC is so far behind the ball on this. And partly it's political, uh, partly, uh, you know, comments and, and other reasons, whatever it may be. But it doesn't matter at this point. Companies are having to do this. Uh, that train has left the station. And um, for all of those nutbags who say, no, you can't force companies to do this, guess what? They're being forced to do it competitively. So whatever the SEC puts in place, it's going to be a mere minimum. And um, they've waited so long and they're so far behind the eight ball. States will start to enforce their own programs. And uh, the person I interviewed was right. Get a framework in place. California and Europe taking the lead again. All right. So, uh, Tom, tell me about a golden time for compliance in the onboarding section. Well, I'm going to be really interested to hear your rant. I have one. Go I ahead. know you do. <laughs> but here's why uh, I appreciated this article. Dick is, uh, and it's by Dick Casson and the uh, editor emeritus of the FCPA blog. And he points out that onboarding is a great time to start talking about compliance and corporate culture. And if we could take uh, my first story about uh, the uh, chief accountant of the SEC, Christy, it's the one of the best times to start talking about corporate culture. And you can communicate 
what a company believes. It shouldn't be done in a vacuum. You have other opportunities to talk about corporate culture in the hiring process. It can be when you have an initial interview. It can be if you make it to the point where you're interviewed by senior management or whoever your manager is going to be, and they interview you once you get past the first round or two. Uh, talking about corporate culture and compliance, it, this is a great time to do it. Uh, he uh, says there are some challenges to doing that, and he gives some responses to that. The point is, it is a great time to talk about it. The question I have or the concern I have is, one of our colleagues on Everything Compliance recently took a job. He had five days of onboarding. That's just overwhelming. If you sit in front of any video learning experience for five days, you know, your eyes are going to bleed out. Um, you're just overwhelmed. And that's onboarding all the way from recording your time all the way to corporate culture and everything in between. And you have to do it because the government says, well, you, you know, no anti-harassment training, no retaliation training, anti-discrimination training, all of that. So, um, you get overwhelmed in many ways, even if it's a two-day onboarding, that can be overwhelming. But if you start talking about corporate culture on the onboarding process or during the onboarding process, and it's a part of an ongoing dialogue, that I think is what sends the message to the new hire, and it reinforces what you want for your corporate culture going forward, because then they start talking about it as they become a more senior employee. So I think Dick is absolutely right. I don't want to say I've been saying this for 15 years, but guess what? I've been saying this for 15 years. He is spot on. I realize you may have different thoughts. So why don't you share them with us? No, I, I don't disagree with his uh, central premise at all. I think that onboarding is a magical, fantastic time to start talking about culture. I think compliance should be a part of that. I think it's really important. And the best part about this article before I step on my soapbox is that he puts some, some pretty fantastic actual statistics on about how good onboarding can really uh, aid you in uh, retention. It, it upgrades retention rates. It makes people more likely to stay. It gives them a sense of being part of something bigger than themselves and uh, more loyalty to the company. So 100% yay for onboarding. Where I think he goes wrong is he starts to talk about reasons that we can't, we compliance can't get time in there for onboarding. And he says, now don't blame HR. Well, I'm sorry, excuse me. I'm going to blame HR because HR is so frequently in charge of onboarding. And in our client relationships where they have not been able to get time, it is an HR problem. It is an hello. We only have 10 minutes. You can have 15 minutes. You can have no minutes. You can talk about it maybe eventually at a performance review, but not now. There is so many, there are so many times that our clients face the challenge of, we just don't have time. Everybody else is more important. We'll play the video and we'll hand them the code of conduct, but we're not going to do any actual training or discussion of this. HR will handle culture, but not in the same way the compliance does. And frankly, I think we should call it out when it isn't there, because maybe this article can help get in the right direction that onboarding is important, but I'm not seeing HR paying a lot of attention to that point of view. Well, I think uh, it does present an opportunity, and I just want to emphasize, don't do this in a vacuum. Uh, it is a part of an ongoing dialogue, but you can begin that part of a dialogue even before you get to the onboarding process. So every time you have the opportunity for an employee touch point from the company, whether that's in the form of onboarding, whether that's in the form of interviews, whether that's in the form of um, annual reviews, 
whatever it may be, uh, talk about corporate culture. So what do you have for us this week on AI that's not Sam Altman and uh, open, uh, open AI related? Uh, we have something very important, actually, that's happening that's going to rock the world once they pay attention to it. Um, the article itself comes from Inc.com, and it's titled, In Landmark Vote, Europe, Europe Approves AI Regulations Paving the Way for U.S. Adoption. So the EU government started talking about this way back in 2019, but it's become so important that, uh, uncharacteristically, the government folks worked at breakneck speed to finish this final adoption, with over 100 people working for 37 hours straight to cross the finish line on this long-desired legislation. So... Uh, what does it mean for your company? Uh, probably not a lot right at this moment. Uh, the final public text of the new law isn't yet available. Trust me, we'll be watching that here on the two gurus so we can jump into it in detail when it happens. But there are some things that we do know. So first, I found, interestingly, there are the bans. So AI systems will be banned in at least three instances. Uh, the first one being if there are biometric systems that use a person's sensitive defining characteristics like sexual orientation or race. Second, uh, your company cannot deploy untargeted facial image data from online or CCTV sources. And last, your company cannot use AI for emotion recognition in workplaces or educational establishments. So I thought those were interesting selections. Uh, the law will require a risk assessment for AI systems that pose significant threat to health fundamental rights. Remember, that's European fundamental rights. That's different than the U.S. Elections and more. So interestingly, the EU lawmakers were quick to stress that they intend to ensure that business and especially small and medium-sized enterprises can develop their AI solutions without undue pressure. That's a quote from industry giants controlling the value chain. So this is the EU's response to concerns that the Googles and Metas of the world will kill small business innovation when it comes to AI systems. Stay tuned as to how they expect to do that. Uh, but Tom, is this a precursor to the U.S. law on AI? Will this one fall to the states like privacy and climate? What, what do you think that U.S. practitioners should take from this, if anything? Christy, I think we, I would think through this the same way I've tried to articulate uh, our, our slot on the SEC and uh, climate, that um, our Congress may never do anything and the regulators may never do anything. But now we have a framework and that framework uh, gives us some guidance. If you follow the EU framework, I don't think you're going to be legally chastised in the United States. It provides a framework for forward-thinking states such as your home state uh, to put something in place. And now we have a, a starting point for discussions. Maybe this is significant enough that our Congress can finally do something. I don't have much hope, but perhaps. But we've got a framework in place. States can now use it. Um, and uh, I think it's a, it's a good starting point. I'm excited. I think that somebody needs to be the first to act and that this is going to be pretty game-changing, at least in helping us to think about it the same way that GDPR helped us to think about privacy in a structured way. And I think it's going to be terrific. Next, I have uh, almost two cultural moments that I wanted to talk about, Christy. And the first one uh, may not be uh, one people remember, but if you don't saw it and you don't remember it, rewatch it. If you haven't seen it, watch it. And that's the movie Serpico. And this is the story of Frank Serpico, a original whistleblower in the New York Police Department, 
who tried to expose corruption uh, in the New York Police Department in the late 60s and early 70s. He wrote a book about it, and that book was made into a movie. I read the book, and the movie is great. Uh, it stars Al Pacino literally at the height of his powers in uh, 73 and 74. I think the movie came out in, um, well, it came out 50 years ago. So it came out in 73. Um, directed by Sidley Lamette. It is as gritty a show, a movie. It uh, was filmed on location in New York City. It is about a real-life whistleblower who exposed his, his literally his neck, uh, or uh, to uh, risk his neck to expose a criminal system. It um, is a great movie. Uh, Pacino was great. Uh, it was a first-rate story. Uh, Serpico, Frank Serpico testified before the Knapp Commission that led to some house cleaning in the uh, New York Police Department in 1970. But of course, they had uh, other corruption scandals since that time. But he was one of the first whistleblowers it's uh, if you're a compliance professional, it's worth watching it. If you're a movie lover, it's worth watching it. Great performance by Pacino, great direction by Sidney Sidney LeMay, and uh, a lot of fun uh, and good. It was uh, this article came from the Guardian of all uh, people. You might think that a United States newspaper would write about it, but uh, kudos to the Guardian and uh, kudos to Serpico at fifty. <laughs> yeah, I I, um, I thought it was really interesting reading this because I grew up uh, south of Los Angeles, not in South Los Angeles, but south of Los Angeles during the uh, the Rodney King riots, um, and we were sent home from school to deal with that. Um, I was in UCLA when the Rampart scandals happened with the LAPD, and was in law school actually when they finally were prosecuting the crash. Uh, people who had managed to do things like plant evidence, beat people in the police station. Um, to frame people for murder. And uh, one of the prosecutors from the gang units came and talked at, at our school at Loyola. It's just a fascinating thing. And, and the, the courage of whistleblowers within a police department or within the military or any other place where impunity is uh, assumed, frankly, in, in many cases, I think it's incredibly important. So the celebration of this movie and this actual man is definitely warranted um, and continues to be very valuable to people in our organizations. So what do you have next for us? I think it's the last of our SEC commentary. There was lots of it going on this week. And it is, uh, this article is from the Wall Street Journal, and it's titled, SEC Head Warns Against AI Washing, the new high-tech version of greenwashing. So agency head Gary Gensler cautioned businesses against making phony AI-related claims that weren't true. So AI washing is being compared to greenwashing, which of course relates to making false claims about environmental focus and or sustainability, typically related to firms, um, investment firms. So the SEC has formally gone after those fund managers for making false claims about their environmentally focused portfolios that were nothing of the sort. So are we going to be looking at this AI washing as their new focus? Uh, Mr. Gensler made his comments at a conference hosted by the Messenger News Outlet. Uh, the, the article quotes an associate regional director in the SEC's New York office saying the agency is looking at instances where publicly traded companies and investment advisors are claiming their product uses AI when it doesn't. All right, Tom, in a fight to the finish, which is going to have more SEC enforcement, greenwashing or AY washing. What does your crystal ball say? Um, 
you know, it's, I, I think this is something we had to have from uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, I wondered how it would apply to Spark Consulting or even the Compliance Podcast Network. Um, I, I'm less concerned about AI washing than green washing, but his message was, don't lie about your capabilities. If investors rely on that, we're going, and it's not true, we're going to want to talk to you. And that's a message I don't think we can hear enough. So uh, AI is obviously cutting edge right now, so it's appropriate for him to say it. His message is certainly spot on. I'm a little bit less concerned about uh, people claiming incredible AI capability than our prior story about actually having some guidelines. Uh, so a little more focus on that. Um, I take everything AI with a grain of salt, uh, all the way back to our friend, the lawyer who got sanctioned for turning in briefs written by AI. So, um, uh, but it's a, it's a message that the SEC should keep saying, whatever your claims are, you have to be able to back them up, whether it's in ESG, whether it's in sustainability, whether it's in compliance and whether it's in AI. It's a crazy idea. How about don't lie? Just say. You got it. All right. What's our second uh, review sentiment from the uh, anti-bribery world? Yeah. So I found an interesting article from the Salt Lake Tribune, which looked back at the Salt Lake City Olympics uh, in a 25-year retrospective. And for those who don't remember, Salt Lake City got the Winter Olympics through bribery and corruption. What did they do? They paid off the Olympic uh, organizers and got the games there with uh, what would appear to be the rather paltry sum of $1 million. Um, but this actually led to some very significant um, Olympic reforms around uh, vote buying and uh, gifts and entertainment for Olympic committee members, uh, particularly those in the bid committee uh, and involved in the bid processes, the two top um, administrators or leaders of the Salt Lake City effort, Dave Johnson and Tom Welch, both were found guilty uh, by uh, on federal uh, or prosecuted on federal bribery charges, but they were uh, dismissed in 2003. The Salt Lake City games, the games themselves were uh, widely perceived to be uh, a great success. But it led to uh, some pretty significant changes in the um, Olympic process. And indeed, our our colleague, Andy Spaulding, uh, was actively involved in uh, the Paris Olympics around their anti-robbery and corruption efforts. And I was part of a committee he put together to put together policies and procedures. So um, the Salt Lake City Olympics, although the scandal was quite bad and for the time really breathtaking, it led to significant reforms that are with us to this day. So once again, I think it's good to look back as we did in my prior story about Frank Serpico from the 70s. Well, here we had Salt Lake City in the late 90s uh, engaging in bribery and corruption, but that got prosecuted and led to uh, some pretty good uh, reforms by the Olympic Committee going forward. Well, first of all, congratulations, Salt Lake City, on your recent win. And uh, Los Angeles is once again gearing up. LAX is a giant nightmare of trying to make it better for the Olympics. So hopefully when it gets here, the, the LAX airport will stop being a giant nightmare. But regardless, I mean, I don't know. I find it 
hard maybe to credit when you look at things like the challenges of the World Cup and FIFA and all of the background with the Olympics. Um, do you really feel like there has been a sea change? I mean, you're more close to it than I am. Uh, I think there has. And I believe that um, uh, the Olympic Committee got rid of, like I said, the lavish gifts and direct spending um, on the bid process. There are pretty good rules in place due to Andy Spaulding around third parties and uh, vendors in the uh, Olympic Games. So I think they've made progress. Obviously, work is always ongoing and remediation of compliance never ends, but at least it was a start. Well, congratulations to that. I know I enjoy the Olympics. I was in London during the London Olympics and got to see beach volleyball and uh, the marathon came by our flat and it was just a really cool experience. So I'm looking forward to it being here in in, uh, Los Angeles in a couple of years time. So, well, Tom, it is almost the holidays as we're recording this. It's less than two weeks until Christmas, if that's something that you celebrate. Um, So in the spirit of those holidays, I felt it useful to choose a blog from the HR software company, Bamboo, titled Employees Need Time Off. Here's how to craft a successful policy. So Tom, it is no secret that Americans are particularly terrible at using their vacation days. And the problem has only been getting worse for years. Right now, only 23% of Americans take their full amount of annual paid time off if you're lucky enough to have a job that gives you such things. So the article suggests ways to make time off more palatable for your employees. Tip number one is tone from the top. If you are a manager, then take the time off yourself. Nothing speaks louder than your work and your words. It's your actions. So um, second, have a written policy clear, and that includes details on how and why decisions are made, whether you're first come, first serve for approvals or whether there's a different decision-making process, stick to it. Um, failure to take time off uh, has been found to have actual costs for a company as constant work can take a toll on health, happiness, and job performance. So in other words, remember that you as an employee may well be serving your company better by taking time off instead of pushing through the holiday season. Uh, same is true if people are sick, do not come to the office. You are not helping anyone. All right. So Tom, uh, I know that you might even self-accuse yourself of being a workaholic. We have heard of your six day weeks repeatedly, six and a half day weeks on this podcast, but for, I just question, is that still true in the holidays? Because for me, I love this time spark compliance since day one, we're eight years in has closed between Christmas and new year's. It's really such a good time to get yourself back in the game. Are you taking time off or is this just a no go, Mr. Grinch? Well, you know, it's always subject to what my boss says, but I have requested uh, the week from uh, December 22nd to uh, January 2 off. Hopefully uh, I'll get that. Doesn't mean I won't check in from time to time, but what I really enjoy about this time is because most other people aren't working, even if I do a few things, I'm either caught catching up or planning ahead. And it really gives me some time to reflect and think about the upcoming year and, and, and put together some initial personal initiatives that I like to do. I just have more time to think. And I enjoy that as, as much as anything. I love the holiday season. I have Christmas music on 24 seven. So um, the, uh, but here's what I'm focused on January 8th. NCAA national championship game. 
because I have one bracket with the University of Michigan and I have one bracket with the University of Texas. So I'm going to have one team in there at least, maybe two. So I'm really focused on that. And uh, although I'm not wearing it today, I've been wearing my 2006 Rose Bowl National Championship sweatshirt every day uh, to give the horns uh, all the the mojo that I can give them. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. But, um, you know, I just enjoy the chance to sit and I, I don't know about you, but I rarely get to think for an hour or plan for an hour or, you know, write out something I want to do for an hour. And so I enjoy that really as much as anything. And, and for me, that's relaxing. Um, yeah, I am a workaholic and yeah, I acknowledge that. Um, but, um, you know, I'm going to I put in a vacation request with my boss. Yeah, we'll see real, what he says. We're real clear, right? Anybody who's who's not uh, understanding that Tom works for himself, um, that he's the one who has to give himself permission. But no, I agree with you. It's the best time of the year to, nobody is mad when you don't respond. And I think that's one of the reasons we shut the whole company down is because our clients are willing to give that space without it causing business disruption or sense that we're not responsive. And there's nothing like being able to, to step back and say, what do I want next year to look like? It's such a gift to have that time to just kind of get into that bigger picture thinking. So may all of you be able to take off the time or at least find some time to sneak in that kind of thinking before the new year. Indeed. So um, I want to end with an article. Ooh, ooh, ooh. We're not ending yet. Florida's after that, but go ahead. No, I want to end my <laughs> last story. How about that? Mm -hmm. uh, my last story is about an article that appeared in the New York University Compliance and Enforcement blog, and it is uh, about the new DOJ uh, safe harbor program around M&A, and uh, it's labeled part one. There's not a part two uh, posted yet, but they really had uh, some interesting questions, the lawyers uh, who wrote this. Uh, Joel Cohen and Meritu Diouf, uh, if I hopefully didn't mispronounce their names too badly, they talk about the key takeaways, and we have visited about that policy, but they raised some interesting questions that I thought, or I frankly hadn't thought of as much. Number one, will self-disclosure de generate additional exposure for the company? Uh, typically, uh, that is a question that, you know, if you're going to open the kimono, what else does it mean? But here you're opening it around an acquisition. And what happens if that acquisition leads to something else? Will the policy impact M&A due diligence? That's directly something you and I have talked about, and we both hope that it will and increase it. Should companies assess potential collateral risks relating to disclosure? You should assess collateral, collateral, uh, collateral risks, but how about those relating to disclosures? disclosures. Is the DOJ going to look at individuals from the prior company? Um, what will that mean? And what will be, might be this policy, uh, the impact of this policy on target companies? Uh, that's something I think you and I have both speculated on literally over the years, but they're all good questions that uh, perhaps didn't get asked in the first round of commentary. So I wanted to cite to this article and have compliance practitioners read it. I'm greatly looking forward to part two of the article to see if they're going to answer those questions or perhaps 
raise others, but you know, collateral uh, issues, what happens if you do self-disclose or other issues going to come out? Is the DOJ going to want more information on uh, collateral matters? All open questions. And I think good questions to at least consider, Christy. Yeah, I, there was a, a small section in there about um, whether or not other agencies will be essentially crediting the self-disclosure element and whether or not you're just opening yourself up to a world of pain somewhere else where they say, well, you told us that you did it and we didn't offer you you know, voluntary self-disclosure credit, so we're going after you now. That's some serious things to think about um, if you're in this position or with your, uh, your M&A lawyer for sure. And that's that exact issue, I think, is on the front of many people's minds. What the heck is Lena Khan going to do? That's right. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. Our good friend there. All right. But we know we know what some people do. Some Floridians do. They always have some interesting takes. Uh, and, and our year-end Floridian man is no different. Shall we talk about Florida man, Tom? Florida man is back. Florida man is back. And let me tell you, he is in trouble. So... Florida man Gabriel Luviano Renteria faces charges of impersonating law enforcement and obstructing policy. Why? Well, let's just say he took a concept out of a rap music video and took it a step too far. See, he has this white truck and he had it custom painted to say in capital letters, Booty Patrol. So the truck was then fitted with red and blue lights like law enforcement, not a good idea, when deputies saw the truck with police-style lights turned on, they went over to find out what was going on. And at that point, Mr. Luviana Renteria turned off his lights and sped away, which is always a good idea. Uh, he was later stopped and fined uh, for the illegal lights, but that's when things got interesting. So in reviewing the footage from the stop, the police noticed that the booty patrol truck was painted exactly the same as a custom and border patrol vehicle right down to the green stripes on the side. The colors were exact. The custom and border patrol vehicle is emblazoned with border patrol and Florida man copied that, but changed a few letters to booty patrol. And it wasn't like this truck was being hidden. It had its own TikTok account. Uh, that caused him some run-ins with the law, especially when posts were tagged with hashtag immigration and hashtag ICE, meaning immigration and customs enforcement. And unfortunately for him, discussions about how his truck is illegal. So this Florida man is now facing additional charges of impersonating law enforcement and obstructing police. His booty patrol failed. I don't know. Florida man, God bless him. <laughs> Indeed, may everybody have a happy, happy holiday season. We will be back in the new year with more Florida shenanigans and lots more fun from the Two Gurus podcast. I'm Christy Granthart. And I'm Tom Fox. We wish you a happy holidays and Merry Christmas. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. We've linked to all of the stories in the show notes. So if you'd like more information, you can click through the links and uh, check out these stories. I hope you will join Christy and I again next time when Two Gurus Talk Compliance, a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.